Tonight we continue and conclude a series that we've been in for several weeks on Does It Matter? This is the fifth in the series, and we have looked at the question of does it matter what we believe? Does it matter about authority? Does it matter which church? And last week we talked about does it matter which church of Christ? And the question tonight is does it matter about fellowship? Hopefully you can see how all five lessons lace together and they fit together that if it makes a difference what we believe and it different, makes a difference about authority and it makes a difference about which church and it makes a difference about which church of Christ, then it does matter about fellowship. And so our question again tonight is, does it matter about fellowship? Let's establish some very common ideas with reference to fellowship. One is that we can fellowship those who teach error as long as we don't teach it ourselves or practice it ourselves. So someone may believe and teach some erroneous concept, some false doctrine, and the idea is we can fellowship them as long as we don't agree with that and as long as we don't practice it ourselves. Another common concept is fellowship is merely a local church matter. And that is, it has to do with what goes on within a local church, and fellowship is not beyond that at all. And yet that's not how Philippians 4 uses the term. In Philippians 4, when we send support to someone, for example, in the Philippines, we're having fellowship with them, Philippians 4 says. And so it is beyond that local church. And another misconception, or at least a common idea, is that fellowship does not suggest agreement. We can have fellowship with someone, but that doesn't mean I agree with their basic concepts, their basic beliefs, and their basic doctrines. Now let's start, start with talking about the importance of the question of fellowship. The importance of fellowship is seen as we look at 2nd and 3rd John, and that is in 3rd John, we'll start there and come back to 2nd John. 3rd John talks about Demetrius, uh, or Diotrephes rather, how Diotrephes had put some out of the church and he would not accept some and therefore he would not fellowship them when he should have. Now we'll come back to that a little bit later. I just want us to put that concept before you. Second John talks about not having fellowship with those who go beyond the doctrine of Christ. So here's the importance of fellowship. That we, if we refuse fellowship with those that we should have fellowship with, like third John talks about, then we're doing what is wrong. On the other hand, if we extend fellowship to those we should not, we're doing that which is wrong. And that's the importance of fellowship, while we need to know what the Bible teaches about fellowship. And someone may be quick to say, well, that's something the elders decide, and I have nothing to do with that. Oh, no. If we accept someone into fellowship in the congregation here, that means you're having fellowship with them, and that means you've got a decision to make. So if we've accepted someone we should not, you've got a decision to make. If we have rejected someone and will not accept them as members when we should have, you've got a decision to make about that. So it affects you and not just those who are in leadership. So again, our question is, does it matter about fellowship? Now let's cover some ground tonight. So let's start with this. Let's raise the question of what is fellowship? It is imperative that we come to an understanding of what biblical fellowship is all about. We have no right to take that term and then put whatever definition we want upon the term. And so we call that fellowship. We need to use the term as the Bible uses it. So the question becomes, can we fellowship those who teach doctrinal error? Can we fellowship those who are practicing sin? For example, maybe living in adultery. Can we have fellowship with them? 
Another question is, is food and fun fellowship? Quite often, someone may say, well, we, we're having a good time and we're, this is good fellowship. There are some churches that have a fellowship hall, and what they mean by that, this is where we cook our food, this is where we play our games, and that's their fellowship hall. Well, sometimes non-institutional brethren use that term in that same kind of context. We go out to eat somewhere, it may not be at the church expense, but this is good fellowship we have one with another. Let's go out and play a round of golf, that's good fellowship one with another. Is fellowship merely a local church matter? Those we seek to answer in our study tonight. So let's raise the question, what is the meaning of fellowship? Let's go to 1 John 1 and in verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. This word fellowship comes from this word kanonia. You say, I don't know anything about the Greek language. You don't have to know that. We're going to let the authorities of that language define for us what that word means. I just want you to know that that is the word kanonia. We'll find the word fellowship a little bit later that doesn't come from this word kanonia. We'll find where this word kanonia is translated in other ways besides the word fellowship. That's going to be important to understanding fellowship. We'll see all of that unfold before us. So I'm not going to read every one of the quotations in detail. I want you to see the highlighted portions, and that is, let's look at what W.E. Vine says. He says this word kanonia means a communion, fellowship, sharing in common. Now notice the idea of sharing in common. It is used with reference to communion or fellowship or sharing in common. Thayer says it means association, community, communion, joint participation, intercourse. Well, let's go further. Here is Kettle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, that large multi-volume set that says that it means fellow or participant. It implies fellowship or sharing with someone or in something. That's the idea of kanonia, fellowship. Strong says it means partnership, participation. It has to do with communication, communion, distribution, or fellowship. You may be saying, well, I'm not getting all of these details. We're going to summarize all of that in a moment. I'm just throwing out the definitions before you. Communion, fellowship, partaker, or partner. The Dictionary of the Biblical Languages, Swanson says it means close mutual association. Lexham Theological Word Book, this is the last, says fellowship, communion, sharing, participation, a term that conveys the sense of commonality, solidarity, a shared responsibility among households and individuals. Says more, but that gets the gist of what we're talking about. Now we have that definition before us. Let's see how that word is translated. That's going to help me. This, by the way, is a footnote to our study, is part of what we're going to be doing on Wednesday night. This is hermeneutics, where we're taking turns and trying to understand them by looking at what the definition may be. So let's see what this word fellowship, this word kanonia is translated. It's found in all of these passages on the side. We have various translations across the top. I'm not going to read every one of these to you. But you can scan the list and see that it's translated fellowship. It's translated contribution in some translations. Sharing, communion, part, communion, fellowship, communion, contribution, participation. Here are other passages and throughout the New Testament where it's used, a plan or partnership, participation, fellowship, communication, sharing. You get the idea. Most of the time it's translated fellowship across the board in these translations, but it has the idea of sharing in common, participating together. That's the idea of fellowship. 
Here is a diagram from Logos Bible Software in the New King James where predominantly the word is translated fellowship. Sometimes it's translated in a minor sense in contribution or sharing or in communion. But predominantly it is the idea of translated fellowship. Now let's summarize what we just saw. What we've come to the conclusion of, we're trying to understand what is fellowship. What is fellowship? And we've taken this word kanonia, what does it mean? From these translations, this is how it's translated. Fellowship, contribution, communion, part, participation, sharing, partnership, distribution, or to communicate, having to do with a sharing in common. Now let's get a summary of how it's used. Now, this is not all the passages, but here are at least four basic ways in which the term is used. It's used with reference to communion, like in the Lord's Supper. We have communion one with another and with the Lord. That's the word kanonia, 1 Corinthians 10. It has to do with community, that is sharing of goods, like in Acts chapter 2. So when the disciples were putting money together and sharing one another's goods, that was fellowship, that's kanonia. It's used also with reference to contribution for the poor saints. The word kanonia is used with reference to that. So when we take out of the church treasury and we help needy saints, we are having fellowship with them. Used that way in 2 Corinthians 9, by the way, as well. And then it's used with reference to cooperation, extending the right hand of fellowship like Galatians chapter 2. Now, let's talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You might want to turn there. We're going to spend a little time there. In 2 Corinthians 6, I'm seeing that fellowship has to do with spiritual association based upon agreement and principle. Now, unless you missed that, I'm going to read that phrase to you again. What is fellowship? Fellowship, we're going to see from 2 Corinthians 6, has to do with spiritual association that is based on an agreement in principle. Now, how so? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. Let's read the text, talk about what it's saying, the general point. Then we're going to look at some key words in that text that help us understand fellowship. We're trying to understand fellowship and be able to defend our definition, not only from definitions from the lexicographers, but from the context of a passage. That's what we're trying to do. He said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. But what's the text talking about? talking about that as a child of God, we are not to be joining together in sin with the world. We're not to participate in the things that they are doing. And so here is what the text is saying. Let's work through it again. Don't be unequally yoked together with the unbelievers. That is, don't pull together in the same load of sin that they are pulling. More about the yoke in a moment. And then he raises some question. What fellowship has unrighteousness with lawlessness you claim to be righteous and or righteousness with lawlessness you claim to be righteous then what fellowship do you have with lawlessness they don't go together and what communion has light with darkness you try to be the light and you're having fellowship or walking with those in darkness see the disagreement that you have and the same thing with reference to those who are serving Christ and those who are serving uh, Baal or uh, an idol 
Now let's look at some key words found in our text. Notice he uses this word yoke. Don't be unequally yoked together. The idea of yoking is the idea of a common work. And notice how, this word, how some words are used in this context. For what fellowship? Here's our word fellowship. But it's not the word kanonia. This word is only used one time in the New Testament and has reference to participation. And so what fellowship, but he, we use the word fellowship here, participation, that is the idea of sharing in action. So here is a common work we're involved in. We're sharing in action. And then he says, what communion has light with darkness? There's our word kanonia, translated fellowship multiple times through the New Testament. I'm beginning to understand how the Bible is using this word kanonia, fellowship, having to do with a common work, sharing in action. What accord? The word accord has the idea of harmony of thought. The idea of having part means that there is a part together with others. What agreement? Here is some agreement of union of purpose. So here's what I'm seeing in this context. There is an agreement in principle leading to joint or common action in spiritual work. That's how the term kanonia is used in the New Testament. Now I understand something about the use of the term fellowship. Knowing that, now I'm understanding why that's important. Let's talk about the direction of fellowship. The direction of fellowship is both vertical and horizontal. How so? Fellowship involves not only fellowship with one another, but our fellowship with God. Now when I identify on the screen me, that's you. When you're looking at that, put yourself there, that's you. That's me. Here I am and here you are, and our fellowship is with God, and our fellowship is also with one another. So it is both vertical and horizontal. There is fellowship with God. There is fellowship with one another. Let's open our Bibles now to 1 John chapter 1. Let's go to 1 John and look at 1 John chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. 1 John 1 beginning at verse 3. That which we have seen and which we declare to you that we also have, may have fellowship with, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So here is that vertical fellowship. Now look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So in this same context, there is fellowship with God, there is fellowship with one another. Now keep that in mind as we go a step further. Let's consider also that it's first vertical and then horizontal. It's first vertical and then horizontal. What do we mean by that? Before we can have fellowship with another, we must first determine if they are in fellowship with God. Now let's look at a couple of passages that may help us with that. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. It must first be vertical and then horizontal. Let's go to Acts chapter 9 beginning at verse 26. This audience is familiar with the story, so I'm going to quickly hit that so we can move to other principles. But Acts chapter 9 is where Saul has been converted, and now that he's converted, he's preaching the gospel, he comes to Jerusalem, verse 26, says that he sought to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. We don't know if he has this vertical fellowship or not. We don't know about that. So we don't know if we want to have the horizontal fellowship with him. We don't know if we want to do that. In fact, we're not sure about that. So Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, verse 27, and declared how that he had seen the Lord on the road and he had spoken to him and how he preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. 
So Barnabas showed and demonstrated he has fellowship with God. So now verse 28 says he was coming and going at Jerusalem, meaning that he had fellowship with one another. So it's first vertical and then horizontal. We see the same thing in 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 7. That if we walk in the light, there's the vertical fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. First vertical and then horizontal. We see the same principle in 1 John chapter 2. I want to suggest to you that any movement or effort to unite regardless of teaching and practice misses the whole point of 1 John. That if someone says, we need to be united. Well, is that person or that group in fellowship with God? Well, it doesn't matter about that, someone says. It doesn't matter what they teach. It doesn't matter what they practice. We want to be united and not be divided. That ignores and misses the point of 1 John. The question is not, how can we be united, but are we both in fellowship with God? Now understand something about fellowship. I know the answer to that question. Let's move now and talk about the basis for fellowship. What is the basis for fellowship? Because we want to have fellowship, or is there some basis upon which we have fellowship? I want to suggest to you that truth is the basis for unity. We'll come to the word fellowship in just a moment, but let's talk about being united. Let's go to that prayer for unity in John chapter 17. So open your Bibles to John chapter 17, and let's look at verses 20 and 21. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, that is the immediate disciples, but for all those who will believe on me through their word. That's me and you, I believe, through the words of, Christ, through the words of the apostles, and so do you. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prayed for unity. But in the context of this prayer for unity, I want you to notice at least three times he gave great emphasis to hearing and abiding by the word. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. You might mark this or underline it in your Bible. He said, I was manifest. Manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept, here's our expression, your word. These disciples have kept your word. Jesus, in his prayer for unity, gave emphasis to the word. Let's go further. Look at verse 17. He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now let's go further to verse 20. They believe on me through their word. That is, the world will believe on me through their word. What I'm wanting you to see is, in the context of a prayer for unity, at least three times, Jesus gave emphasis to the word and adherence to the word. Well, if that's not sufficient, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 10. You remember the church at Corinth was divided. And Paul writes to them telling them that there should be no divisions among them, but that you should be perfectly joined together. Now there's two phrases I want you to pay attention to, in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he said, I want you to all speak the same thing. That's sufficient, we could stop there. And that's telling us that truth is the basis for unity. I want you to all speak the same thing. And that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. That expression, the mind, was used in chapter 2 of the same book, by the way. The next chapter, chapter 2 and verse 16, to have reference to the revelation, the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the revelation of Christ. It was in the context of the revelation. Now, the word judgment, that's an interesting word. That same word is used 
in Acts chapter 20 and in verse 3, and it's translated decided. It's a decision, a conclusion. So what's the text saying? That we be joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, the same standard and the same conclusion from the standard. The standard is the revelation of God. What's the conclusion? What the revelation of God taught. Not a perversion thereof. So truth is the basis for unity. Truth is the basis for fellowship. Now let's go back to 1 John chapter 1. Let's go back to the context of 1 John chapter 1. Let's establish that truth is the basis for unity, for fellowship. In verses 1 to 5, 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 to 5, the revelation of God was delivered by faithful witnesses, the text says. Let's get verse 5 which summarizes that section. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is the light and in him is no darkness at all. Now let's back up. I wanted to get verse, um, verse, verse 2 is actually where I wanted to start. That life was manifested as we have seen and bear witness. There's the point I wanted you to see. Here was the revelation of God that was delivered by faithful witnesses. So we have the revelation of God that is mentioned in the context. Now that revelation is the basis for truth. Look at 1 John 1 verse 6. Drop down to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now you see the points being made? Verses 1 to 5, revelation delivered by faithful witness. That revelation is the basis for truth. I'm learning that from verse 6. Now verse 7, that revelation is the basis for fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. What I'm wanting you to see is truth is the basis for unity. Truth is the basis for fellowship. Now, I want to skip a couple of points and I want to jump down to a word. Watch for this because you're going to need this later in a study on Wednesday night. Watch for this word abiding in truth. I'm not going to read every one of these, but numerous times scattered throughout the book of 1 John and into 2 John and into 3 John, I want you to see this concept, particularly 1 and 2 John, the idea of abiding in truth. John talks about abiding in truth. He talks about abiding in truth. He talks about abiding by his commandments. Repeatedly he talks about in the context of unity and fellowship of abiding in truth. Let's establish a third principle. We're talking about the basis for fellowship. Truth is the basis for unity. Truth is the basis for fellowship. But truth is the basis for rejecting. What do we mean by that? There is a place and a time, and we're going to see in the New Testament, when one would be rejected from fellowship. No longer do they have fellowship, or they will not extend the right hand to fellowship. Now, what's the basis for that? Is it arbitrary? I don't want to have fellowship with you. No, it's based upon truth. Harmony or disharmony with truth. Let's see this in Romans chapter 16. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And that is where to mark those who are contrary to the doctrine. He said, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine. Notice that phrase, contrary to the doctrine, which you have learned and avoid them. So there we are to mark or identify and avoid some that are contrary to the doctrine. So truth is the basis for rejecting. I don't reject them because I don't like them. I don't reject them because... They said something or did something I don't particularly like. It has to do with whether or not they agree with truth. Now let's furthermore notice another text. Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
You are familiar with 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that deals with withdrawing from those who walk disorderly. What does that mean? Drop down to verse 14. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not company with them. So what I'm seeing is that truth is the basis for rejecting, truth is the basis for fellowship, and truth is the basis for unity. Unity and fellowship is dear and precious. Psalm 133 tells us that, but that should not be maintained at the expense of truth. That's what we want to see. In other words, we don't make compromises so we can have unity. We don't make compromises and say we'll have fellowship with teachers of error and practices of sin so we can have harmony and we can be united. Fellowship indeed does matter. Now there are two more things we want to see. And here's the first of those two. Thirdly, let's talk about forbidden fellowship. I know what fellowship is and I know the basis for unity. There are passages that talk about this fellowship is forbidden. You can't have this fellowship. What is that? Well, let's open our Bibles to 2 John 9 through 11. Only one chapter in 2 John, so we're looking at 2 John 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11. And let's see what this text says, and let's talk about some objections that are made to the use of this text. The text says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now put a finger there, a marker there, or come back to that as we have time. We're going to be looking at several things about 2 John, particularly verse 9. Let's see what it's talking about. 2 John 9 serves as a summary of 1, 2, and 3 John. So if you want to get a glimpse of what is 1, 2, and 3 John about, you say, well, I think it's talking about love. It does deal with love. I think it's dealing with worldliness. Chapter 2, it's dealing with that. But if you want a good summary of the entire section of the epistles of John, look at verse 9. The one who transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. B.H. Carroll said it best when he said this is a golden text in New Testament jewel against the progressives who seek to reinterpret or go beyond the faith once delivered to the saints. I say amen indeed. Let's look at this word doctrine as it's used here. Notice verse 9 uses it twice, verse 10 uses it once. That is, we are to abide within the doctrine. The one who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If one comes and doesn't bring this doctrine... What is the doctrine he's talking about? The doctrine has reference to the revealed truth of God. How do I know that? Let's give evidence thereof. Let's look in 2 John beginning at verse 1. 2 John verse 1. Notice the emphasis on truth throughout. Remember we talked earlier about abiding in truth? Here again we see the emphasis on truth. Notice without reading every verse, look at verse 1. He says, whom I love in truth. Talks about truth. And those who I have known in the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Notice how many times we're just in verse 2 and he's talking about truth. Three times. Drop down to verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we received the commandment. He's talking about walking in truth. Walking in truth. Walking in truth. All right, let's go further. That's verse 4. Look at verse 5. I wrote to you a new commandment. Verse 6, that we should walk according to his commandments, and this is the commandment. He's talking about truth and commands. Then he comes to verse 9. 
Whoever does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. He's been talking about truth, the commands of God. Now the doctrine of Christ. And again, the one who abides in the doctrine. If one comes and does not bring this doctrine. And then at verse 12, he talks about, I'll write unto you. The context argues for the fact the doctrine of Christ has to do with the revealed truth of God. But we're not through with that. Let's talk about an argument that is made. Those who have objected to the use of this passage have said the doctrine of Christ is not the doctrine that Christ taught, but it's the doctrine about Christ, whether or not he's deity. So we must abide within that doctrine in order to have fellowship with God and one another. And if one doesn't have that doctrine, we can't have fellowship with them. But he may teach something contrary to what Jesus taught. We can have fellowship with him as long as he abides within the doctrine that is about Christ. And so that argues for broader fellowship. So get the argument. What, what, what are they saying? They're saying we can't use this passage to say that one who teaches error, say on premillennialism or on instrumental music or on divorce and remarriage, that we can't have fellowship there. We can have fellowship as long as we agree about the doctrine about Christ, not what he taught. We don't have to agree on that. We just have to agree on what the doctrine is about Christ. Would you know the Bible talks about, uses a similar phrase talking about the doctrine of the Pharisees. Was that a doctrine about the Pharisees? Or was that the doctrine the Pharisees taught? You know the answer to that. Jesus warned about, was he warning people now, if they come around teaching you about the Pharisees, you need to be aware of that. Don't worry about what they teach, just worry about what's said about them. No, you know what the answer is to that. What about the doctrine of Balaam? What was that about? Was that the doctrine Balaam taught or was that a doctrine about Balaam? Here's another phrase similar to that. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Same question. Was it about the Nicolaitans or what they taught? What about the doctrine of the Lord and the doctrine of God? Obviously, we know the answer to the question. Vincent said, it's not the teaching concerning Christ, but the teaching of Christ himself and his apostles. That's his comments, though he's a lexicographer, that's his comment, and he's absolutely right about that. A.D. Robertson said, it's not the teaching about Christ, but that of Christ, which is the standard of Christian teaching as the walk of Christ is the standard of the Christian's walk, 1 John 2 and in verse 6. The context argues for it's the doctrine that has been revealed. Here's another objection that is used with reference to offsetting 2 John 9. We can't use 2 John 9 because the context, verse 7, limits the doctrine. So let's look at verse 7. So if you've left that passage, perhaps you've gone over to 2 Thessalonians. Let's go back to 2 John and let's look at verse 7. And that is, there are many deceivers that are gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This deceiver is the Antichrist. And so one of the arguments that's made is the context. We like the context. We like appealing to the context. That the context is talking about the one who rejects the Christ, who denies Jesus came in the flesh. So they, they are saying that verse 7 is showing a specific application, and that's the only application. But I want to suggest to you that verse 7 is one specific application. Verse 9 states a general rule parallel to the truth. That is, the general principle of truth. 
the era of verse 9 is not the only violation of that doctrine. Let me give you some parallels or some concepts that may help us with that. Albert Barnes said, probably the immediate allusion here is to those whom John so frequently referred to as Antichrist who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. At the same time, however, he makes a remark general that if anyone does not hold to the true doctrine respecting the Savior, he has no real knowledge of God. Barnes indeed was correct. Now let me show you some parallels. Let's take 1 Corinthians. Forget about 2 John. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Let's take 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 says, put away that evil person. Talking about withdrawing, verse 13. That's a general principle. Now, there was a specific application. He dealt with fornication in the context. Is that the only evil person we can put away? Could we go to the context and say that's the only sin that was mentioned? Really, it's not the only sin, but that was what was mentioned in the context. So you understand, that was one specific application of this general principle. All right, here's another passage. 2 Thessalonians 3, withdrawing from the disorderly. The context deals with the lazy and the busybody. Is that the only person disorderly that we withdraw from? If you're not lazy and a busybody at the same time, they were together, mentioned it together. So the lazy, who's not a busybody, or the busybody that's not lazy, we couldn't withdraw from. It's one who specifically meets that one Example he gives in the context. Or are there other cases of being disordered? Is there a general principle, but he just simply gave a specific application? Let me give you another example. Galatians 1. He talks about another gospel. I'm, I marvel that you're so, removed, so soon removed from him that called you into another gospel. He warned about going to another gospel. But the context is dealing with Judaism. Is that the only example? Is that the only application? In other words, can I not take Galatians 1 and warn when someone teaches a gospel that's not involved in Judaism, but they're teaching a different gospel? Because he's dealing with a general principle to which he gives specific application. Let's get one more before we go to 2 John. 1 Corinthians 15, There is the warning of association with false teachers. Evil communications corrupts good manners. So the warning is, don't associate with false teachers. They can corrupt you. The specific doctrine in the context was those who deny the resurrection. Does that mean I could associate with teachers who deny the deity of Christ? And that passage doesn't apply. And I could associate with those who teach that the Bible is not inspired as long as it's not this specific doctrine. No, no, no. Here's a general principle. Here was a specific application. The same thing is true with reference to the doctrine of Christ. Here is a specific application. Those who deny that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now let's go back to our text one more time before we go to our fourth and final point. And then let's just talk about those that are condemned in 2 John. You should have this marked in your Bible because we've been over this many times. But let's see if we don't find this in our context. Who is it that is condemned in 2 John verses 9, 10, and 11? Verse 9 mentions one, verse 10 mentions another, and verse 11 mentions a third. Let's see who they are. First of all, there is the one who practices sin and error. Look at verse 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The person that is condemned is the one that goes beyond the doctrine of Christ. They practice sin. They teach in teaching or in practice. They practice sin or they're involved in error. Now verse 10 mentions another. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house or greet him. This has to do with the one who teaches error. That person is condemned. So let's just put it in modern day setting. Here is one who is involved in adultery. 
because they have divorced and remarried contrary to Matthew 19, Matthew 5. Are they condemned? Yes, in verse 9. What about the man who taught them that was okay? That's verse 10. Now then, there's a third person, the one who receives the false teacher, for he who greets him shares in his evil deed. You see, that person that now says, you know what, I don't agree with Brother John Doe's teaching on divorce and remarriage that encouraged that, that unlawful marriage, but I'm going to have him for a gospel meeting anyway. We're going to accept him into fellowship. We're going to accept him as a member here, even though he encouraged that, but we don't agree with that. You see, all three, those in sin are, are condemned, verse 9. The false teachers condemned, verse 10. Those who accept that false teacher and embrace him, verse 11. Now, not receiving someone where we don't extend the right hand of fellowship doesn't mean we should not be long-suffering. We need to be long-suffering. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Corinthians 13, love is long-suffering. Not having fellowship with one does not mean we don't love the sinner. We should love the sinner and care for them. It doesn't mean we wouldn't be patient with people as they grow. We may have someone that's in, involved in sin and they need to grow and we're trying to, to work with them. We need to be patient with them. It doesn't mean that we're going to divide over every issue. And I cite Romans 14 to which we go to next. Now let's talk about a fourth and final thing. That is the commended fellowship. What we've seen is what fellowship is. The basis for fellowship, forbidden fellowship. There is a commended fellowship. And that is, here is where we are to have fellowship in spite of one, the difference that we might have. So if you don't already have your Bible there, let's go to Romans chapter 14 and see what we find in Romans chapter 14. Now time is going to forbid us to give great detailed analysis of the text. But because we're dealing, does fellowship matter? We need to deal with Romans 14. We've got to deal with it or we haven't done justice, I think, to the subject. Everyone will agree. That is, among brethren who agree and disagree, whatever, on Romans 14, we all agree with what I'm about to say here at the beginning. And that is that Romans 14 says, be united in spite of your differences. Romans 14 is saying, agree to disagree. In fact, verse 1 says we ought to receive the brother. We don't dispute with him, verse 1. We're to pursue things that make for peace, verse 19, and don't bind your opinion on others, verse, 20, verse 22. But here is the question. What is the nature of the issues that are dealt with in Romans 14? That's the big question. So let's analyze the text. Let's go to verse 1. Verse 1 says, receive one who is weak in the faith. Let's talk about that weak brother. In what sense is he weak? He is not weak as per the context in his faith in God or in his service. He is not talking about one who is weak and on teetering on just departing from the Lord. That's not in the context, not dealt with in the context, doesn't fit the context. He is not talking about spiritual strength. He's not saying he's not spiritually strong. In fact, he's very spiritually strong. He's very strong in his faith in God. He's very strong in his service. So he said, what's he talking about then? He's talking about one who has a weak conscience. He said, how do you know? Well, let's look and see. Look at verse 1. He said, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over, I'm reading from the New King James, doubtful things. 
Verse 1, the American Standard translates with scruples. You may be reading, and many of you are, from the English Standard or the NASB. That is the New American Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version. And that is, it uses the word opinion. That is, here are differing opinions, differing scruples, matters of conscience. Now, I know that also because there are two issues that are dealt with in this context. And let's establish what those are. There are two issues. One is the eating of meat and the other is the observing of days. Look at verse 5. That one person esteems one day above another. There's the days. Observing of days. More about that in a moment. Back to verse 3. There is let not him who eats despise him that does not eat. Let not him who eats judge him who eats for God has received him. So the two issues dealt with in the context had to do with the eating of meats and the observing of days. What kind of issues would arise over those matters? Perhaps this will help us a little bit. From the Jewish standpoint, perhaps they were still bothered by the Old Testament restrictions on meat. Having to do with what's clean and what's unclean. Can you imagine a Jew who has not been able to eat pork now that he's a Christian and he has pork set before him may bother his conscience. And I just can't eat it. I just can't do that. I've always viewed that as unclean and I just can't do that. And so consequently he views that as unclean. And you set pork before him and he said, I can't do that. Is it sinful? Well, no, it's not sinful. But to him it is because it violates his conscience. For the Gentile, it may still involve some association with meat that has been sacrificed to idols. That every time he eats meats, he thinks about being sacrificed to an idol. And he can't do that conscientiously. What is the observing of days? Perhaps Melvin Curry captured thought. He said Paul never tolerated the binding of Jewish holy days on the Gentile Christians. However, he permitted the observance of such practice by Jewish Christians so long as they had not binded on others. Some Jewish Christians could not bring themselves to abandon the observance of the Sabbath in the holy days after they'd been baptized. Not to rest on the Sabbath would have violated their conscience. Can you imagine a Jew just being converted and he comes to the Sabbath and he knows this was not much binding now. I'm to uh, worship on the first day, but the Sabbath, I have a hard time working on the Sabbath. I've never worked on the Sabbath. And so here's a day that he observes. The context is obviously dealing with matters of liberty and indifference. And if you don't get anything else about Romans 14, get these points. Here's the question at hand. Does Romans 14 deal with matters of doctrine and faith and morals or matters of indifference and liberty? And if you've been unfamiliar with the controversy over the last 20 years or 25 or 30 years on Romans 14, the whole question is whether Romans 14 deals with matters of doctrine and faith. So that when an issue arises among brethren, some are ready to say this goes under Romans 14 because Romans 14 deals with matters of doctrine and faith and morals. So let's look at some things and you perhaps want to mark this in your Bible. We're trying to answer which one of these fits Romans chapter 14. It's matters of indifference and liberty. Notice at verse 3, whatever is going on, God has received him. Look at verse 3, let not him who despise him who does not eat. And not not him who eats, judge him who does, who eats, uh, for God has received him. On either side, whether you're eating or not eating, God has received him. Does that fit adultery? If you're in adultery or not in adultery, God still receives you. That doesn't fit, does it? Doctrine and morals, no matter what you do. Look at verse 6. Whatever he does in the observing of these days, he does it to the Lord. Has to do with his conscience and his relationship to God. One who commits adultery... Is that to the Lord? That doesn't fit. Morals and doctrine don't fit. Look at verse 13. 
You're not to judge or condemn him. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. In other words, you don't go to the brother who's eating and judge him and condemn him. And the brother who doesn't eat, you don't judge him and condemn him. Am I not to condemn the one living in adultery? 1 Corinthians 5 says we were. One teaching error, not to condemn. Romans 16 says you are. Look at verse 14. He's not doing anything wrong within itself. I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. What if you eat meat? It's not unclean. What if you don't eat meat? You're not doing anything unclean. It's not wrong either way. Same thing with observing a day. What, what if I just take a day on the Sabbath and I rest even though the Sabbath is not binding? You're not doing anything wrong. What if I work on the Sabbath? You're not doing anything wrong. Nothing wrong within itself. And then notice at verse 22, you keep your differences to yourself. Do you have faith? That's not talking about faith in Christ. So how do you know? Have it to yourself before God. You mean I'm to keep my faith in Christ before God and not tell anybody else, not bind it on anyone else? No, no, no. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your conscience, verse 1. Your scruples, your opinion. Don't bind it. You think it's wrong to eat meat? Don't bind that on someone else. You think it's right to eat meat? Don't bind that on someone else. You don't think you should work on the Sabbath? Don't bind that on anyone else. Now, it's interesting to me that morals and doctrine are dealt with in the context of Romans 14. By context, I'm talking about broader chapters. Because you have morals and moral issues that are condemned in chapter 13. You have doctrinal things that are condemned in chapter 16. It's hard to imagine that when he comes to 14, he says, but you can agree to disagree over those in chapter 14. When they were condemned before and after the chapter. Now watch this carefully. Some are ready to raise the question, what's the big deal about Romans 14? I, I hear preachers arguing over this, and, and does Romans 14 deal with morals and doctrinal matters of indifference? Who cares? What's the big deal about Romans 14? I want to suggest to you, Romans 14, the abuse of Romans 14, is the dump truck into which all forms of error are being dumped and are being trucked off and sold to the brethren. How does that work? Here's how that works. Someone comes along and says, you know, Romans 14 deals with matters of morals and doctrine. And so this error on divorce and remarriage, we're to agree to disagree over. And so they take that error and they dump it into that abuse of Romans 14. You know what? If he can drive up there with his loader and put divorce and remarriage there, you know what I can do? I can bring this doctrine of premillennialism and I can dump it in there too, can I? If not, why not? And so someone else comes along and says, you know what? Uh, I want to put instrumental music there. And so we're going to take that same truck and we're going to take our loader and we're going to dump the error concerning instrumental music or maybe the deity of Christ or maybe the inspiration of the scriptures. And I want to tell you, that's how error is being packaged and trucked off and sold to the brethren. Now watch this carefully. If we can take and put error there, we can also bring that same loader out here and we can dump sin in there. If not, why not? This man teaches error on divorce and remarriage that I can also tolerate the adultery and the fornication in all forms of ungodliness. So if you can put one sin in there, you can dump another sin. And if you can put that sin there, you can put another sin. And here's the point I want you to see. The next generation will make the logical application of the principles. When we're being told over and over, Romans 14 takes care of morals and doctrine. That's why we're not calling issue lines over things like divorce and remarriage or creation or whatever. We're not going to do that, someone says. The next generation will take the logical step, and they're going to pack all kinds of error and all kinds of sin in Romans chapter 14.
Now, how does Romans 14 apply to us today? What kinds of issues are going to fit there? The criteria, as per the context, is this. It's a matter of indifference. We saw it in verse 14, and it's a matter of conscience and scruples. Let's go to verse 23. I know our time is gone, but we, we, we need to tie this all together. Look at verse 23. But he who doubts, there's your weak conscience, is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. The idea of his faith is not his faith in God. It's not the faith, but it is a conscience because he's doubting for whatever is not of faith is sin. In other words, you violate your conscience, you've done wrong. So it's a matter of conscience, it's a matter of indifference. What kind of things may fit that? Well, not morals and doctrine, but maybe things like non-religious observance of Christmas. We're right in that season right now. You may not be aware, but there are some brethren who have a conscience problem with putting up a Christmas tree and exchanging gifts. They think it's wrong. They may not bind it on anyone else, but you invite them to your Christmas party, they won't come. You offer them a Christmas gift, they won't accept it. You invite them to your house and you say, we're going to do some Christmas things and they're, they're not coming. They, that bothers them. That's fine. Don't invite them. Invite them another time. You see, that's how Romans 14 comes to play. Don't bind that on them. There's some who have a problem playing cards or playing dice because they associate it with gambling. So what do you do? Well, you just don't, you don't invite them. You don't insist on playing with that. You do something else. The same thing maybe of maybe uh, eating in a restaurant where there's a bar in the back or to the side. Some have a conscience problem. Well, then don't take them there. Don't ask them to go with you. See, that's where Romans 14 comes to play. Don't bind your opinion on them. Here are matters that matters of indifference where God doesn't care one way or the other and matters of conscience. Now, I want to mention this briefly and then we're, our lesson is done. These are two different patterns. We've looked at John 9, 2 John 9, and we've looked at Romans 14. Romans 14 says, receive him. John, 2 John 9 says, don't receive him. Those are two different patterns. This has matters of indifference. Over there is matters of faith and doctrine. So under Romans 14, if God receives him, we should too. Under 2 John 9, if God rejects him, we should too. So our question is, does fellowship matter? Does it matter about fellowship? And the answer obviously is when I understand what fellowship is. And when I understand the basis of fellowship. The basis of extending fellowship. The basis of not extending fellowship. The basis of withdrawing fellowship. I see there is forbidden fellowship. I also see there is commended fellowship in spite of differences. As we saw in Romans chapter 14. Hopefully not only this lesson, but the series has been helpful to you. Does it matter? And the answer is, it does matter. What we believe, it matters about authority. It matters about which church, it matters about which church of Christ, and it matters about fellowship. And that's just the beginning of things, list of things that matter. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?